0: There's a story. Can you hear me okay? No? Okay. So hold on a second. Ah. How's this? There's a story of someone criticizing the great Thai meditation master, Ajahn Chah, for being inconsistent in his teaching. And he, he said sometimes Ajahn Chah would give one instruction, sometimes he'd say something different. Sometimes he'd even contradict himself. And I John chas response was, it was if he saw someone walking down a road that had a ditch on each side. And if he saw someone veering off to the left, he would say, go right, go right. If they'd start to veer to the right, he, his instruction would be the opposite, go left, go left. This is what we're doing here we're providing a a framework, we're all working within a structure. Each of us talk about it in our own ways and we may bring different perspectives, but it's within one structure and framework. Each teacher brings their own style, their own voice. And then each we engage in the practice to the best of our ability in our own way. If each of us practiced exactly the same the, the practice would unfold uniquely for each of us. It wouldn't happen in just one way, right? We start with a practice and then the whole key is we look to see what's actually happening. That informs the next step of what's needed, right? This is why there is no one size fits all instruction. And while we're giving a range, here in the hall, and then, of course, working individually. So tonight, I want to talk about um, a particular structure. It's it's one of the Buddhist lists called the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. And I'm going to talk about it in various ways that it can be understood and how, in particular, focusing on how it can be applied to practice. And... in more particular to concentration practice. The seven factors of enlightenment are commonly associated with insight meditation and if you do many retreats, you'll hear talks on them. But they're also intimately very much a part of a concentration practice. In fact, these seven factors, as you'll see, map right on top of what we're doing here very precisely. Six of the seven factors are found either directly in the jhana formula. And I understand we keep talking about jhana, but we haven't actually gotten into it so far on this retreat. But they're found either in the jhana formulation or in the Pali text, they're in these introductory passages just before the Buddha gets into, he's just getting ready to go into jhana, leading up to it. So it maps very directly on to concentration practice in addition to it. Um, insight practice. The Pali Suttas say something very astounding. They say, anyone who has ever been enlightened, ever, or who is currently fully enlightened, or who ever will be in the future. So this is a big statement. And what I'm about to tell you, it's not just tucked away in some obscure corner of a Sutta somewhere. It appears in I found 5 different instances there could be some, another place I've missed prominently so we should pay attention to this if we're practicing in this tradition anyone who's ever been enlightened is fully enlightened or ever will be he's done some so through three things number 1 abandoning the hindrances we've been talking about that number 2 well established while being well established in the four foundations of mindfulness, then number three, developing the seven factors of enlightenment. Abandoning the hindrances, well established in the four foundations of mindfulness, and then developing the seven factors of enlightenment. Simple. (laughs) Right? Yeah, it's not so simple to do, but conceptually, at least, The lists aren't that, you know, we can get a handle on them. there, So we want to pay attention. Um, Sometimes, just as a little background information, sometimes the seven factors appear in the suttas just as a simple list. And sometimes as a sequential progression, both ways. I'll talk about them in both ways back and forth. Um, I'm going to work through them sequentially the seven factors can be viewed as prescriptive and descriptive, and you may want to think about that, keep that in mind as you're hearing this. It can be a description of what happens simply through the practice of mindfulness of breathing. And it can be prescriptive, it's, it's a prescription, it's telling us how to apply them to our practice. So it works both ways. I'm mostly going to talk about them as prescriptives in in the sense of practical ways we can apply them here on this retreat. Um, The first factor, actually before I get into that, so far on this retreat, and I want to repeat what uh, Philip and now Andre have said, um, there's a lot here. I'm trying to keep this down to some simple basics that are applicable and not get too much information. Nevertheless, there is information, there's words coming at you. My recommendation is um, don't try to remember all this. You may not want to try to remember any of it. Just let it come in and you know, we keep this, this is not just kind of a, a generic platitude we put out there to say, well, then whatever you need will be there when you need it. Really, if you're practicing your breath med- mindfulness of breathing meditation and you're trying to remember, okay, what did he say when PT, that's one of the factors. When PT arises, how was the difference? It's too much mental activity. It's gonna lift you right out of your samadhi. Your job is simple. Staying, finding ways to stay connected with the breathing. And then what I'm pointing to tonight, then, will be, it starts to, we start to talk about some of the ways, not all, and it may not, they may not all fit f- for you, but some of the main ways in which samadhi can start to manifest some of the other experiences that come along with it as it deepens, and then a few basic things to keep in mind when that starts to happen. Right? So... We wanna keep it simple. If you wanna take notes, I notice a few of you do, that's okay, but really simple. Mindfulness is the first factor, and it's followed by three energizing factors, and then finally three tranquilizing factors, and this will be clear as we continue. So let me say a little bit, I won't spend too long on this first one, and I'd like to ask you a question. What, some of you have heard, heard this before, what is the meditation instruction when you're lost in thought, you forget about the breath, you're just gone off somewhere? Anyone wanna say? Anyone? Come back to the breath? Come back, right. Right, that's what we would all say. Actually, it was a trick question. When you're lost in thought, there is no instruction. You're gone. No instruction. You don't even know you're gone. The instruction kicks in when you're back. You're already back, and then we say, come back. And what we mean by that is notice that you're back. Don't fall off. You know, we say this over and over don't fall into beating yourself up or making a problem. Be happy. You're back. Continue on in your practice. practice, no matter what style of meditation we're doing, it doesn't matter. It always hinges upon mindfulness, right? That goes without saying so. We talk about how to cultivate, how to deepen mindfulness. And until we reach certain very deep states of stillness, and and they can be attained, certain jhana states and everything, you will have times when your mind's gonna wander away. Is there anyone here whose mind? Actually, I don't wanna ask, so never mind. <laughs> I get into trouble. Mindfulness is often equated with insight meditation, and then concentration is considered a, a different practice. And of course, you can practice that way, but you actually cannot do one without the other, right? You cannot practice Vipassana, insight meditation without concentration, and you can't practice concentration meditation without some amount of insight, of clarity, of understanding what's going on. They go hand in hand, it's like two sides of your hand or two sides of a piece of paper. You cannot have one without the other. So when you come to a place like Spirit Rock and if you're doing a insight meditation retreat, The only thing that's happening there is we're emphasizing the insight aspect more. But certainly we're practicing in ways that cultivate the settling in and the stability of mind, So it's still there, it's just the emphasis. When you come here, we're just emphasizing the concentration aspect more. But the mindfulness and where the insights are important uh, is in there too? So it's just a question of emphasis. One last thing on on mindfulness. Um, we talk. We've already made this distinction, but I want to emphasize it here. The distinction between mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness with breathing when the mind is is clear and steady and all the other experiences are easy it's easy for them to be in the background we we give strong preference to the breath and we allow it to be in the foreground and we're doing mindfulness of breathing and for the times when the hindrances are really up or it may not be a hindrance it just may be some strong other experience even if there's not a hindrance associated with it where it's you know it's the other experience is just not in the background instead of creating a struggle just as we do in any vipassana retreat we bring we meet our present moment experience we don't create a struggle but we we can bring the mind the breathing the mindfulness of breathing in with us either to keep it in mind with that whatever knee pain or actually using the feeling like we're breathing into the experience. Whatever works to keep the mindfulness in there with it. And we're switched to mindfulness with breathing. So I like to say that we're always either doing mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness with breathing. And then when things subside, we come back to mindfulness of breathing. Acknowledging that even on a retreat like this, there may very well be times of what's happening is all bets are off. It's no mindfulness of breathing. It's not mindfulness with breathing. You're just trying to hang in there the best you can with whatever the experience is. And so, okay, there'll be those times too. The next factor, the first of the energizing factors, and I'm gonna give the, you don't have to remember the Pali, I'm gonna give the Pali and then I'll give the, just so you've heard it, and then give the English, is called Vichaya. It means investigation. This Dhamma is the Pali, Dharma, Sanskrit. The common um, translations are the teachings or the truth. And that's how many translators, um, how many translate this in reference to this list. Um, I think we should consider this also in terms of another very, very important meaning of the term dharma or dhamma. And that is phenomena or things. Very, very important common usage of the word Dharma, Dhammas, things. But not in the everyday sense, from a Dharma perspective. So when we're bringing our mindfulness and our clear awareness to meet an experience, we're connecting with, you could say, with Dhammas, with the elemental nature of experience of things. Right? So with this Dhamma Vichai investigation, that's another way to think about it. Through the first factor mindfulness, Mindfulness, what are we doing? We're practicing mindfulness of breathing. Then the investigation factor can come in. And, and um, we often talk about this in terms of uh, insight meditation. and I won't say more about that here, but to give you a couple of examples here in, uh, that's already happened here in this retreat. When I wasn't in, the, in here, but I heard when Sally gave on the, the, the first afternoon, rather than a metta, she gave some guided, helpful ways to help you connect more with the breath and I, I i believe it was some really noticing there's a beginning and end of a middle of the breath right? you may not have been connecting with that the experience of the in-breath may be different than the experience of the out-breath things like this it's actually bringing some of the investigation factor in as a tool as an aid in service of the concentration practice to connect us more with the breath Similarly with what Philip did with bringing in uh, awareness, a, a sense of connecting with the earth and air elements. That, that's another example of the investigation factor. Y- you can think of you, b- combining the mindfulness with the investigation factor to come to connect with, to know, perceive directly some of these characteristics. And in this context, it was particularly in service of, and for some of you, you know, each of these will be helpful in other things may not be. It's just different tools in our toolkit to help us connect with the breathing. So that's an, investi- that's an idea about that. When the mind is clear and steady and the concentration is strong, uh, the investigation may look somewhat different and, and in actually in some instances, um, it can feel like it's happening more on its own. It's supported by the power of concentration. We naturally understand more what's happening in the moment. We don't have to consciously bring the investigation because it has now ripened. And so we need to know when's the time to bring that factor in and use it in various ways. And when is it time to be aware when it just is at work. It's, it's operating strongly there, right? And I'll say more about that in some detail as I get into some other factors. But just think of it in this way. The mindfulness, and oh, one quality I forgot to mention that's not one of the seven factors, but I think it's important. I'm just adding it in myself here. That when I talk about mindfulness, I think goes hand in hand, which is the Pali word Sampajanya, which means it was translated as clear comprehension or clear knowing or clear awareness. And it's often talked about sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. The mindfulness is not being on automatic pilot or lost, it's being, knowing what's happening, and then closely connected with that is then, and a direct result for that is clearly comprehending and knowing what's happening. Through the mindfulness we get the clear comprehension. They're very close. Sometimes people don't distinguish them that much, that's fine through the mindfulness, the clear comprehension, and the Dhamma-vichaya factor, it's really leading to a clear knowing of what's happening in service of deepening our practice. We have to know what's happening. And so I'm going to be inviting you to reflect on your practice. You may not be in deep samadhi during this talk, although um, there are people here who you know, will be getting in deep samadhi, right? That can happen to you on talks. So you may want to reflect back or look what's happening in the moment, and I'll point this out, bringing these factors in. Mindfulness, second factor, investigation, Dhamma Vichaya. Third factor, virya, which is generally translated as energy or energetic effort. It can also be translated as vigor or exertion. It actually means state of a strong man, and the word virya is is closely related to the English word virile. So you get the sense here? This is a real John Wayne kind of energy. It's not pu- just um, effort, in the in the right effort in the Eightfold Paths. The word for effort is neutral. It's vayama. It just means effort. Viria here is this energetic quality. So what's happening is, as the practice is starting to deepen, um, first of all, we, know when, we need to know through our mindfulness and our, and our investigation factors to inform when is it that we first of all need to bring that energetic effort. And we've talked about that, so I won't say too much here. When do we need to ratchet back? Which there's always times that we have to have more of a softer touch or an allowing. We use passive voice verbs receiving your experience, we'll talk like that. There may be times keeping a relaxed attention, not getting stressful, but we might, from that place, need to bring quite a bit of of viria in. So this is part of the art and skill that we're learning. So we have to tune in and come to know through experience Notice in your own practice the times when the concentration's stronger. Isn't it true when the samadhi is strong and the mind's clear? It's, it's, you're, it's actually happening much more clearly and deeply, but the amount of effort needed is it's so much easier, right? The virya is, is the support of the concentration is, is strengthening the virya, so it's taking on a power of its own. Its own momentum is starting to happen. In that, when that's happening, if we keep, there's, there's a story a golfer once told me of. Um, um, uh, he was playing golf and he brought a, a, a gorilla to be one of the four partners. And, you know, one guy hits the drive and it goes 100 yards, and one guy hits it, and then one guy says, Now check this out. The gorilla hits it, goes 400 yards. They go, Wow, this is fantastic and they get up closer to the green. One guy chips it in 25 yards. The gorilla hits it again, 400 yards, right? We have to know when, what's the right amount of effort that's needed in there. So this is the wisdom. This is where the insight piece, for example, and the wisdom need to come in as part of an example in our concentration practice, Right? But you notice how different it can feel when the support of the concentration is there. the very strong. This is a place to start to notice. So you don't want to stir your mind up and be thinking and looking every minute. But in general, we want to start bringing in that awareness. You may want to consciously check in from time to time, one or two or three times in your practice. And over time, as things become clearer, it is just known in the moment. It's just known and we can trust the inner, our inner teacher, our inner wisdom. And, and you, you know what's needed, right? That's when the viri is in balance. It's very important to play, pay attention to. We need to learn when it, the, the practice is taking on its own momentum. Now this, what I'm about to say here, I'm gonna mention a few places in the talk that I consider to be key points. So if you don't wanna remember everything, I'll say, this is a key point. This is a key point. I think one of the most important things is really being aware, not stirring your mind up, but just knowing when its own power is taking over, it's kind of happening more on its own so that we ratchet back in perfect harmony with it kicking in. So we keep the same effort going, but the sense of us doing is... Backing off and its own momentum can happen. We're we're letting go into the into it. Right? You don't want to do that too soon, or else you, when you still need to be bringing the effort. But we don't want to be the gorilla, you know, hitting at the four hundred yards when you need what you need is a putt. Right? If you're two feet away from the hole, you don't want to hit it four hundred yards. Some of us will still try to do that, but it's not going to serve us. And then okay, we suffer, we learn. The first time I ever went into Jhana, I'd been on a long retreat and I don't know how, I don't remember exactly how far I was into it. I, it turns out I was pretty close to Jhana, but I didn't know because I didn't have a reference point. I didn't, you know, if, if you haven't walked through the door, you just don't know. That's why we have teachers and other people can help us because if, if you haven't touched it, you don't know, You could be close. And I was practicing and practicing and things were going great and really it felt so great I wasn't thinking, thinking about John anymore, it was, it was great. And it's like, you know, this is fine how it was. And even though the mind was getting pretty still what didn't get distracted very much at all, it still was liable to wander And it in just a brief, it was just light, but I got lost in a thought. I went away just for a moment right into John when I, when I went away it felt like what was happening there was whatever amount of doing, basically it needed me to get out of the way, right? And so just, I was close enough that its own momentum could kick in, and it took me that le- little bit of letting go when I just spaced out, and then its, the, its own energy went in, and it went into the jhana. It got my attention. <laughs> Okay, we have mindfulness. Second, investigation. The third, now things are starting to cook. The energetic effort's starting to happen. The energy's building now, so sequentially, going, coming back to what um, Andre was talking about last night, PT. This is one of the two factors I'm going to spend a little bit of extra time on tonight. So this is a big topic, PT. You know, it's translated in many different ways, bliss. Actually, the translations for "pt" and sukha are, they get, if you re- look up the various translations, they, they, they're, so piti is translated. I've, I looked up a whole bunch of them. Bliss, rapture, joy, zest, delight, happiness. Andre was also talking about the aspect that's um, like a rapturous uh, interest or a or, or really engaged or intense interest. Um, I'm just going to split hairs for a moment here. I think this, the intense interest is a, is, a, is a good use of the term PT." For me, personally, I think of PT as these energies themselves, and the effect of them is to bring in the intense interest, not so much the intense interest itself, but not every you know it's fine to take it either way. I, that's my own distinction. Other people may have, it doesn't matter. All of these qualities are there in the PT. I actually view the PT and the suka as a, as part of a spectrum. PT can manifest in many many ways and it varies tremendously. It's highly highly individual. And it can be e- e- experienced through various sense doors through the body. Here it's sound, visual is lights. Um, it can be experienced, embodied. You know, there can be energies that are just experience it in your body and it's clear when that's happening. And other times, it's not so clearly connected in the body and it's you might say it's, just, it's an experience, but it maybe we call it a mental or a not exactly connected in the body experience. Some of the common ways that PT manifests, energies, bliss, light in the body Sound can be experienced embodied. And there can be, and these can be connected together through, f- through the hearing, it, can, it can, there can be a blissful quality. All of these can be experienced as a mental f- phenomenon, as I said, not so clearly connected in the body. Whether it's, some people get sound, some get light. So sometimes you'll hear teachers say, you gotta get it this way, you know, some teachers say, you gotta see a light then people struggle to see a light. It's not related to how deeply concentrated you are. Who knows? Maybe it's the way neurons are wired up to fire in your brain. I don't know. It can come through any of the sense doors to be equally deep. And so you can see, how is it manifesting for you? Lights. You know, if you hear someone in the hall say, oh, I'm seeing lights, don't get into... I want lights. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Or if someone's you know, saying, oh, I'm so blissed out. I'm a, it's like, I remember, I think it was one of my first retreats. I'm sitting in the hall. I was actually having an okay retreat, but you know, ups and downs. And I look around, everybody just looked like Buddhists. And I remember clear, I was so, very naive and idealistic. And I remember thinking, look at them all. Everybody's blissed out but me. <laughs> What's true is some might have been, some not. The ones who were in the morning aren't in the afternoon. It's, it's, you know, it's just we're all mo- these experiences are coming and going. So we want to PT is important to understand how to work with it, but it's not to be grasped after. And having said that, look, interviews are going. I know lots of people are grasping after PT. Right, a lot of people want. When's that bliss coming? I want bliss. I'll say more in a minute, but let me say this. That bliss, and, and Andre was talking about this last night. This is important. That bliss that's like, oh yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> Later, and actually we're talking about jhana and the, s- the deeper stages of jhana, the bliss has dropped away because it can feel too coarse or rough. It's like what seemed like, oh man, this is it. Now is I just want to be still. The stillness is is um, subtler, but it's much more deeply satisfying. So I don't want to get into that too much. I'm just saying that because we want to hold PT in perspective. We want to understand it because these energies are going to happen, and the reason it's here is we have to know how to work with them skillfully. But we don't want to make it more than they are. These are conditioned states. I was talking with a few people here who, like me, uh, like Philip, started off in more of the Hindu-oriented yoga traditions. So I lived in an ashram for a few years. I started my practice in 1970, and it was all pranayama, breath meditation, uh, p- mindfulness of breathing, breath meditation, mantra, and the idea was to get the more blissed out, the better. You know, if you went into some catatonic state, th- that would be great. You were like, whatever they would say, merged with God or something. They were using that kind of language. And it was great. And you had this idea that if you reached enlightenment, somehow you go into some permanent state like that. These are conditioned states. They come and they go. I don't know anyone who's gone in a permanent state like that. It may not be that desirable anyway. You know. These are all reasons why working with a teacher is important. If you grasp after the the PT or you get a little stuck, we'll pull you out. We'll point out, oh, you're suffering, you're clinging. So, you know, sometimes people can shine a light where we don't see. So I just want to point out um, a few things to keep in mind with, in particular, about how PT might manifest. One I've already mentioned is, Actually, let me back up here for a moment. We're talking a lot about mindfulness of breathing and staying with the breath. Check out in your own practice. Notice if sometimes, on its own, without you doing anything about it, even though the sensations of the breath are there, the various experiences of samadhi whether it's the PT in all the different manifestations or the stillness, the calm, expansiveness, peace, however you're experiencing the deepening concentration, those experiences are actually more predominant. They're popping out to your awareness more predominantly than the sensations of the breath. It can be that way. So you just want to notice if that's happening. This is bringing the investigation piece a little. Other times you may notice on its own, without you doing anything, even though the experiences of samadhi can be quite strong, the PT, whatever, just the plain old physical sensations of the breath are popping out to your awareness more predominantly, even though the strong PT's there. It can be that way. You just notice that. I'm not, at this stage, I'm not telling you to do anything. I want you to just start to bring the noticing. A third way that gets kind of interesting is and it's hard to describe but you'll know it clearly when it happens, the sensations of the breath and all the experiences of samadhi, the pt or whatever, whether it's light, sounds, energies, bliss, they're they're mushed together in one thing. There's the sensations of the breath and the samadhi. They're merging into this one experience. Don't worry about this. Don't go looking about it for it. I'm just pointing it out because when that happens, it's clear. You don't have, if you're wondering, don't worry. You'll know it. It's just clear when that happens. Some of you are already experiencing this. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to have, you know, this doesn't have to be the second coming or, or, you know, the fireworks, whatever level, even a light level of PT, this can happen. So we're just keeping an eye on how is it unfolding for me? Right. One of the things that can happen is, is that just to give you an idea, I don't want you to get ahead of yourself, is the PT, the breath, and these experiences can merge into this one thing. And you've got a really a new object, if you will, although at this point, I don't know, object's kind of maybe a gross, clumsy term, but it, that's, that's the, where it's happening in the meditation now, this new thing. And when that happens, then, then, then there's a few choices on what'll happen if if it's a, it might be experienced as embodied. So breath and PT and body can be experienced as one thing. And then we just don't, that's fine. Or it's not connected in the body. And there's people already reporting to me a little bit. For those who are not having this, watch out for your comparing mind. What I'm about to describe actually isn't necessarily desirable as some of them will tell you. The PT is so strong, it's like there's a whoosh going and it's pulling you out. It wants to pull you into it. Disconnect from your body. And in fact, the PT can get ahead of the samadhi, of the, uh, of the steadiness and undistractedness of mind. And when that happens, there's a lot of energetic stuff happening, but we're kind of like, oh my God, what's going on? And I'm scared, or, right? We need to bring the stability up to meet it. So that's what would be needed in a case like that. If it's been, if we want to notice is it trying to, I'm not going to get into exactly what to do here. We'll work one-on-one with you. But we want to notice how is it manifesting? Is the PT coming up in a way that instead of the PT coming into me, into the body, I want to go into it. You know, I want to go into the light, go into the bliss. Leave, you know, I'm disassociated in some way. So we're just noticing the different flavors of how it might manifest if it gets strong. So we're just planting those seeds. When these things start to happen, it's obvious, and then you, that's what we're quite comfortable working with all of these, and this is just natural. There's no right or wrong for any of this. I'm just naming a few possibilities. Okay, enough on PT. Just as we want to do at some point or will happen at some point in the meditation practice and the talk, we're going to let the PT go. And that's what happens. The deeper states of samadhi are actually not states of attaining new things. They're deepening states of letting go and settling. And so at some point, as I said, it's not that we, sometimes there is a sense of we let go around it. We want to, you know, it's more of feels like quote unquote us doing it, but a lot of times on its own, there's a settling in that happens and the PT settles out. And it's, we're not whooshing off somewhere and it's not necessarily the fireworks, but we're dropping into it actually a deeper state. It's more settled, more clear, and so then we're moving away from the energizing factors and into the tranquilizing factors. So we have three factors left, okay? I'm gonna say the next two, I'm gonna talk about them in reverse order, but let me tell you them in the normal order. The the next, first of the tranquilizing factors is Pasadhi and Pali, tranquility. And um, after that is Samadhi concentration. I wanna, I'm gonna talk about it because to understand Samadhi will inform our understanding of tranquility, okay? So let's go to Samadhi. Okay, this is a big topic. As you know, our whole retreat, as you know, in English, we're saying it's a concentration retreat. In Pali or Sanskrit, we're doing a samadhi retreat, right? So this one factor, our whole retreat is a samadhi retreat. Um, Sally already mentioned that the term, there's actually nothing wrong with the word concentration except that there's a lot of connotations or baggage that can come along with that term If you go to the root meanings, it actually has more of a meaning of undistractedness. There are many, many understandings about the role of samadhi. How it relates to insight meditation, how important or not it is. Just, it's a huge range out there, and there's not a right or wrong. As far as I can tell, there's these great masters who've become deeply, deeply realized, enlightened, practicing in all these different ways, which is actually wonderful news. But just to say, there's a huge range of understandings. I'm gonna name just a few, not to get into the concepts as as if we're doing a class on it, but just to sort of, in particular, how how they may be unfolding in your own practice. So even though there's a huge range of opinions and views about the importance and the role of samadhi, what it is, no Buddhist teachers say, be distracted. None. So in some way or another, it's an important quality. Right samadhi, I'll just mention this as, as kind of an aside of the Noble Eightfold Path, is defined as the four jhanas. That's what it says. Um, so for those in, um, but on the opening night, Philip stressed that this is a concentration retreat, not a jhana retreat. So it opens up to the full range of what samadhi might be. And of course, that includes jhana too. We're not, I'm not talking tonight about jhana. I'm just mentioning that to put it in a context. Um, just, just to complete that, even though the suttas say right samadhi is the four jhanas, I think a more useful way, this is just me, this is not the Buddha, to think of it is right samadhi culminates ultimately in the four jhanas, but it's always right samadhi at every stage, even if you're a beginner, as long as you're bringing right view, right understanding, you know, the other factors that support it. As an enlightenment factor, it's, uh, it's, samadhi's a factor at any stage of its development. I've already talked when I talked about PT as some of the experiences that can come with deepening samadhi. I want to name, and Andrea pointed to this last night, I want to talk about a couple of main ways that undistractedness can manifest. So, and, and there's a lot of ranges in between, but I'm just saying sort of two extremes to make the point, and you'll get the idea. And I want to invite you to notice in your own practice, if it seems like it's inclining one way or another, there's no right or wrong. So if you picked any object, so we'll take the breath, or anything, and you kept your attention on that, as your ability to concentrate strengthened, as the samadhi strengthened, you would get better and better at being able to keep your attention, we could say narrowly focused on this one object or one point, right? That would just some of that's probably happening. The breath may be an example of that. If you took that far enough, you could get so, ultimately it would be possible to be, get so good and skilled at concentrating on a point that you could be, we call it, exclu, you could be exclusively your awareness on the point to the, to the, so that you wouldn't notice any other experiences happening. You wouldn't even feel your body anymore. There would just be the one pointedness this is this ekagata, the fifth jhana factor. The eka means one, it can be one or single or uni, unification, all good translations. That would be one way direction the samadhi could go, right? If um, you got, re- I mean, we're really taking it quite far, but I'm just, it could head in that direction. That's, that actually some teachers are heading, want to head you into that goal and that's fine, but we just want to know it's a particular style of undistractedness and the key point that i mentioned is you would lose the changing flow of experience you wouldn't be aware of that and it would just be more of a fixed we call it fixed because it's fixed on a point or exclusive and it excludes everything else there's another way that undistractedness can develop that is if you took it all the way, as far as it could go, it's just as deep, it's just a different kind of undistractedness. And in this second kind, rather than the changing flow of experiences coming to a stop, the mind itself comes to a stop. Please don't ask me what the mind is. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But experientially, the mind itself comes to a stop even while the awareness is there for the full unfolding of the full range of all experiences that can come and go. It's a different kind of undistractedness. It actually would take you to what we sometimes call choiceless awareness. But it's a choiceless awareness with a strong base of samadhi. So it's really a presence. Both of these are ways that can go into two different kinds of jhanas. It turns out there's actually more than one jhana system. It's beyond the scope of this retreat. But to keep this in mind, right? Either type of these concentra- samadhis, whichever, however far you're taking it, can be relaxed or can be tight. So that's, it's not that narrow is automatically tight. It just varies. But it's just really narrowed. Certainly you can see in the service of insight meditation, um, we wouldn't be encouraging this one-pointed kind because when you lose connection with changing experiences, even if you haven't taken it all the way, if it starts to fade, you can't do insight because you need to penetrate into the nature of reality, the nature of experience. Anicca, Dukunata, the three characteristics. Impermanence, suffering, or unsatisfactoriness, and, and selflessness. You need changing experience. So it certainly is not, doesn't map right onto insight so directly. This other kind of undistractedness where the mind comes to stillness but all the changing experiences there more easily maps directly, I say more directly to onto insight. A matter of fact, the insights could even be happening there and some people might even not tend to separate insight and concentration so much in that way. So just to give you some flavors. Take a moment. Notice um, just what's happening in your own experience right now. I, I'm quite aware, and this was conscious, I'm clipping along the pace of the talk because I've got a lot I wanted to cover. So that may feel like a lot of energy coming at you. I don't know how it, so just notice that, put it. Notice if there's a lot of things that you're feeling like, okay, gee, I thought it was supposed to be the breath. Now, is the PT going this way? Or is it going that way? Is samadhi, is inclusive? Oh, is it one, po- you know, it's, no, let it go. Just coming back to staying with the breath you'll know which of these you need. And we'll ask you to report about these kind of things as things unfold. I want to come back now. I think there's lots, lots more that could be said about samadhi, but that'll be enough for tonight. I'm going to come back to the previous, the fifth factor of enlightenment, pasati tranquility that I skipped over because now that we've talked about samadhi a little, we can understand what we mean by tranquility because there's actually two kinds of tranquility. There's a tranquility in which experience itself has been cooled out and tranquilized. There's not there's just a stillness. There aren't so many thoughts. The body is you know, we're not getting a lot of sensations in the body. It's, it's the body's becoming tranquilized. Right? Our experience is very much an experience of stillness, of calm, of peace. That's a tran- that's a tranquillity, right? And that's one way to understand this um, what the study's talking about, of tranquility. And it fits perfectly with the progression because I was talking about as PT, which is, was important, its function is important. It's, it's, it's not only an important function, it's just part of the experience of samadhi, but it also has the function of that intense interest of bringing us in. You know, if you're going back to PT for a moment, um, and I believe Sally will, will go into this more, but just to say, if you're worried, oh, I'm bored, I don't want to be with the breath. If the br- breath is pure light and bliss, you ain't bored. You want to connect with that breath. That what we're more concerned about is that greedy mind that's saying, you know, I can remember uh, this is a little embarrassing, but uh, being on a retreat, and I mean, it, this, um, of course, it wouldn't happen to me these days, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, back when I wasn't... Uh, <laughs> it actually doesn't happen to me much of these days because you know what? We suffer and learn. You know, it it really suffering is, I'm going to come to suffering in a bit because uh, um, I wish, maybe you're different about this, but I'm a tough case and suffering is not a problem. It's really a doorway. So one of the ways that I've suffered is, I'm sitting here on retreat. It's great. Everything I was fantasizing I wanted and more that I couldn't have even anticipated. It's all happening. And I'm in it and even opening up into new territory and new terrain. And then I remember clear as a bell, the word came in my mind with this this feeling, more, (laughs) right? You can guess what happened when I came back from my next sit, it's like, what happened to my bliss? <laughs> no, 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 it's not supposed to, they went away, no, no, come, right? Now I'm just sitting here with knee pain <laughs> and I'm pissed off at everybody, what happened, <laughs> right? Nothing went wrong, it just changed. These are conditioned states, right? So when that happened, I mean, was that a setup for suffering or what? And it's a corruption. It takes something that's beautiful and wholesome and important, these, these meditative states. Again, we, when we say we don't want to make too much of them, we don't want to cling after them. They're conditioned. But they are important. They're talked about a lot when they're in the service of wisdom. But if we're just clinging after them for their own sake, it's a complete defilement of mind and we're actually on the road to more suffering. If we're able to bring enough awareness on that road to suffering, it's actually not necessarily a bad thing because it's unmasking levels of the greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind so we can come to know that, bump up against our suffering, learn to let go of our suffering, learn to rest at peace, This is a different kind of tranquility and it leads to the last factor I wanna talk about which is equanimity. This is the, 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 the tranquility that's based on the, built on the foundation of samadhi which is great and important and it's a conditioned tranquility. It's conditioned dependent upon the support of the samadhi. Moving into this equanimity, there is an equanimity that's also conditioned that rests upon the foundation of samadhi, right? And so that's important and we want to know that. And so I won't say more about that except th- I was already starting to t- move to this last piece, equanimity, and it's this unconditioned equanimity. So the seven factors of enlightenment are conditioned states and then this equanimity We can springboard from the conditioned equanimity into the unconditioned. I gave you a perfect example. Then we start to bring the wisdom faculty is coming in. Right out of the concentration and the clarity of mind, the seeing, the knowing is so clear. And so when the defilements can arise, that greed mind, it's great. It's a wonderful opportunity to see there. We can start to work with it. We come to this place, equanimity is not mean not feeling anything, it's a non-reactivity. There's the non-reactivity based on samadhi and then there's the non-reactivity that carries through regardless of the state of consciousness, whether you're in meditation, retreat, deep meditative states, or you're in everyday daily life street consciousness. And you don't have any samadhi, or not much, because the tendencies towards greed, hatred and delusion have been uprooted. It's not dependent upon. So this is the deeper equanimity that we're heading for. It's where the insight piece comes back in even when, even in the context of a concentration retreat. And what we're being asked to do here then is something that goes against the stream of our normal way we operate. And this is the piece I'm gonna end on, but it's, it, it changes everything. How is it that we all seek our happiness and our well-being? You don't have to answer its rhetorical question. I already know the answer. There's, there, I know a number of people here, but there's not a single person here that I know intimately. But I feel quite confident in saying that we're all doing one thing in common. And by the way, it's nothing wrong, it's just being a human being. We're all trying to get more of what we want, more pleasant experiences. We're all trying to have less unpleasant experiences, right? Anyone here trying to get more of what you don't want? I don't think so. Have less of what you want? No. That's just so deeply habituated as being a human being, Right? what the equanimity is asking us to do is make a shift. And really, it's conceptually quite simple. And this is really, you could could look at the whole practice this way. Instead of looking for our well-being and our happiness in circumstances, in having pleasant and not having unpleasant experiences, we start to shift and it's more about how are we relating to whatever experience is actually happening, less than the nature of the experience itself. And so what we're being asked, this great, wonderful endeavor is, can we find the peace, the liberation, in the midst of the ever-changing flow of experience? We know ahead of time, if you don't know, I'm telling you ahead of time, whatever experience you're having, it's going to change. That's good news, uh, depending on what's going on, or bad news, right? If we're clinging, a huge shift came in my practice when I got just as interested in my, in my suffering as I was in my bliss. Big shift. There can be, you know, you're on retreat and, you know, we have all the times where it's wonderful and then whatever despair, loneliness, whatever, all my self esteem issues, uh, you know, a mind burning in ill will, whatever, it's all raging. And you can not only is there, is, are you present with that, but you even see the mind reacting against it and, and the mind itself in kind of a battle. And even with that, underneath it can be, I don't know, is it another part of the mind, another place in the awareness that rests clear at peace, liberated? Seeing that these are conditioned states, they come and go. And so when you come back after lunch, say, and that great sit that you had in the morning is gone and it feels like it's falling apart or that heart of metta and love for all beings has turned into, you know, everybody here is pissing you off. (laughs) Yes, we want to work with it skillfully. We want to understand what's happening. But we also want to know it it changed due to some causes and conditions. So we don't have to get back to some previous experience we have. We have to get here. And then we need to bring all the tools. That's what we're talking about. What's wise and skillful to support us given what's happening in the moment? How do we work with our bliss? How do we work with our suffering? The heart and mind of liberation, this is the heart and mind that understands The nature of things, of all experience, and of our own being. This is where we're heading. It rests at peace. It understands that all things that arise must pass away. It cannot be any other way. Nothing's going wrong. It understands, therefore, that nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. This is the wisdom piece. And the texts use this, I think it's a very beautiful standardized language, these stock phrases to describe when that truth has been fully actualized. And it says, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. That's where it's pointing. We will have reached, and it's talked about in some beautiful, this, to end some beautiful ways, that's when we will have reached, it's called, reached the far shore, the safe harbor, the highest happiness, the deepest peace, the ultimate refuge from any state of stress, freedom, liberation, Nibbana. So please, we'll just sit quietly for a few moments. May our wholesome intentions and actions be the cause and condition for freedom, peace, and an ending of suffering for ourselves and for all beings. Thank you for listening to the Dharma this evening. Um, it's, It's time for half an hour walking period.